Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. This roundtable was facilitated by community moderator Andrew Bennett, and its topic of discussion was autistic identity. The participants were autistic self-advocates Thomas Island, Sarah Bradford, and Michael Gilberg, and community members Rosetta Walker, Vanya Umenjo, and Corey Taylor. In today's conversation, we discuss what is identity and what gives us ours, person-first versus identity-first language, autistic with a capital A, why autistics value identity, what is, quote, normal, respecting someone else's identity, masking, the difference between fitting in and belonging, how to encourage society to be more inclusive, and the importance of empowering young autistics to become self-advocates. In this episode, discover what's possible when identity is fluid. To learn more about the participants, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online Global Autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. Hi, everyone. Um, for those who haven't met me yet, I'm Andrew Bennett. I'm an autistic self-advocate, BCABA, and SkillCore alum. And I'm facilitating today's roundtable on autistic identity, which is going to include some subtopics of what identity is, what it's based in, the forms of identity that we express, and how that relates to issues of person-first or identity-first language, and how autistic people live their lives and their identities in the world, and perhaps masking as well, and false identities that we might have and how we can live truly. So we'd like to go around the room and introduce ourselves in one minute or less. You get that amount of time to sum up who you are. As long as we're talking about identity today, who's going first? (laughs) I'll go first. Uh, I'm Tom Island. I'm based in Los Angeles, California, and I'm on the autism spectrum. I do coaching of young men with autism about love and relationships, independent living, further education, employment, as well as public speaking and becoming their best selves. I wrote a a book called Come to Life, Your Guide to Self-Discovery to be used as a roadmap to help people become their best selves. And my philosophy is that life doesn't come to you. It's up to you to come to life. 
And during the pandemic, I embraced Ironman triathlons and finished my first one last year and even set a Guinness World Record as the oldest person with autism in the world to finish this race. So I'm glad to be here with all of you today. I look forward to today's conversation. That's a couple of terrific accomplishments. Yeah, who's going to follow that up? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you were the one that spoke next. You must want to do something. Oh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Corey. I'm a BCBA. I have traveled with SkillCorps three times now as a volunteer, as a leader in training, and a leader on my last one. And I was recently hired to help manage the SkillCorps program, which I'm really excited to start. And I am currently a moderator for this community, and it has been a wonderful experience to work with Andrew and Rachel. And that's me. I'm Sarah Bradford, or SJ Childs, and I am um, late diagnosed autistic and author of children's books, podcast host, and an event host. So I'm really excited to just join communities and bring people together what I love to do best. I am Rosetta Walker, the queen of inspiration. I'm a best-selling author in the book Mission Unstoppable. And it talks about people's failures and how you can take that and turn it into blessings. I'm also the fiance of Thomas Allen, which you just heard him introduce himself earlier. <laughs> I'm a member of Toastmasters and also an advocate for autism because I believe that whether you own the spectrum or not on the spectrum, it's very important that we have acceptance. So this is the reason why I'm here. And that's who I am, the Queen Inspiration. I own Walker Records Production, already Walker Publishing, and Rosetta Creations, which is located in New York, and I'm based in California. It's a pleasure to be here today. We're glad to meet you. Look at you, you got a trademark under your name. Thank you. You got it. Well, we have a few core questions, and I want to start probing the topic of identity. And I believe the first one that we should ask is, what is identity and how do you define it? And what gives us our identity? What objective and subjective qualities or traits or markers are there? To me, identity is answering the question, who am I? Beginning with who you are as a person. And it was Aristotle who said, knowing thyself is the key to all wisdom. And when we get an idea of who we are as a person, what we can do, what we have to offer society, and how we can make the world a better place, and then put that into action, that makes us who we are as people. So that's my Cliff Notes response to what identity is. That's important. That's why we start with that particular question so that we can then help other people. Okay, I'll, I'll jump in. Having to reassess my own self and kind of find out what really made sense <laughs> after I knew more. I, I think that now perception is really important when you're looking at identity for me was being able to understand fully the depths and complexities of what I hadn't known for so long. Somebody just asked me the other day, like, how did you feel when you found out? Was it, I thought right away, I was going to like come back to the community and shout, I'm autistic. Hello, I'm here. And it didn't, it took me months and months and months to process it and to then be like, okay, now I feel safe 
saying it. And it was so interesting how comfortable yet reserved I felt about it being as outgoing as I am. So uh, for me, it was really about that the new perspective that I had. But now I feel like so embraced and so much more belonging than ever before. I love the concept belonging. I'm glad we mentioned that. Sure, we'll get more into that today. I think with identity, there's also this sense of pride with whatever you identify with, whether it's a specific group or maybe even a personality characteristic or trait. I feel like usually when people identify with something, it's because they want to. It's like they choose this identity or embrace it or accept it rather than something kind of being pushed on them that they're rejecting. I think you make a very good point, uh, Rachel, that there's a degree of acceptance that we have to have and a degree of choosing. Let me chime in. I just want to say a different way of identity. For example, with Tom, when I first met him, with him being on the spectrum, I've never dated anyone on the spectrum, but I didn't look at him for his diagnosis. I looked at him as a man. And I think that's important too. They look at the person for the human that they are, see what they are, what they bring to the table. So that's another way I think of looking at identifying. Is it not just a particular subjective trait, but as a person first? Then, Corey, you are unmuted. You have something to add? For me, I think identity is also interesting because there's things that you identify with that will be with you for your life, you know, whether it is an autistic identity or identifying as a woman or whatever it is. And then there's identities that can be fleeting for me as an athlete my whole life. And then when my career ends, I lost that identity. And that was really difficult for me as well. So there's like a lot of different changes and growing different identities when you lose one, but there are always some that kind of maintain throughout your life as well. So it's always a kind of a ebb and flow. I think it's infinitely important question to think about what those identities are that are subjective and fluid and what things are more objective and fixed. I like to think that autism is fixed because it's something based in something biological and inside of us. And so it means that there's room for subjectivity as well. And moving on to a little bit towards the next question, that there's a subjective way that you can interpret and live out the autistic identity as either autistic, maybe even with a capital A, which we'll discuss later today, or person with autism or on the spectrum, as we've seen from some other people on the call today. But both of those are based in an objective reality that there is a difference. And so it wouldn't be possible for me to identify as non-autistic because that's not in line with a reality that we know to be true. But other than that, you have freedom to do whatever you want. So within the bounds of the information that you have, I think you can do whatever you want with it. So under that umbrella of a person with autism or autistic or person first or identity first language, what do you personally use for yourself or in general as a default when speaking about other people? And why would that be the case? And this ties back to the discussion of identity. Um, when I was young, I read a book by Jerry Newport called Your Life is Not a Label. 
And from that moment on, I discovered the importance of seeing people for who they are first and what they have to offer more so than what we may label them as. And on that note, I choose person first language because my philosophy is if you want to be acknowledged and accepted by humanity, you must first acknowledge and accept your own humanity. If we put people into boxes or circles or segregate and separate them, that doesn't encourage unification and discussion on what we have in common. So I think we are all members of the human race. And by saying I am a man with autism, I am a person, first and foremost, a living, breathing human being. I think that shows, for me at least, great self-respect and that my diagnosis doesn't have to be my definition. And that has helped me a lot in my life, personally and professionally. That's my two cents on person versus identity first. You know, I love that. And I just want to jump in with the other side of that, because I think that as a mother who had a child with a diagnosis prior to my own identification, it was so important for me to understand how I could support him. And without knowing or having that, you know, identity or, or knowledge, I wouldn't have known. And so I am I think it's so important to be caring and compassionate and like Tom said, just human to everyone. And that includes also giving others a little bit of understanding in what they might not know or be confused about. And that's only helpful for me when I'm with other children and they're not understanding my child. And so I think that for me, being able to help them understand and then look at me and say, you know, but I am also, you know, autistic, but as you can see with DJ, who is semi-verbal and me who communicates very fluidly, there's just these sense of different supports and and needs that just need to be addressed individually for us all. And so I just, I hope that, you know, everyone can just be very compassionate to each person in their own human experience. And hopefully we can just keep pushing that message. I want to take a moment also to bring uh, Michael into the conversation as well. He just uh, joined. Thank you for your comment there as well. Thank you. Today's uh, facilitation is about autistic identity. So we are currently going around and talking about what is identity. And on this particular question, we're explaining the difference between person first and identity first language. So if you'd like to introduce yourself and then also tell us a little bit about what you might think about that question, if you wish to add something. Sure. My name is Michael Gilberg. I'm a special education attorney and self-advocate on the spectrum. I was diagnosed when I was 18. Again, some of you have heard this before. I think some people get very wrapped up in the language of person versus identity. And I've seen people get ridiculously angry at others about it. And I think while it's a matter of personal choice, I don't really care either way. And I think sometimes people get to a point of sensitivity about it when someone makes an honest mistake. That sometimes if someone makes an innocent mistake, they shouldn't be crucified for it. And I've seen a lot of that where people will say something 
and somebody will be like, no, I want to use this this version, and people will get really angry about it. And I think we have to, as one of my friends says, give a little grace, but also understand that you know, some, it's important to some people, it's not important to others. To me, it doesn't really make a difference. I certainly see that. Like, There's certainly a lot of debate out there, and it can easily get out of hand. I think healthy debate is good, but until it gets to the point where it gets too much, you make an important point to meet in the middle. I really like that, though, because it allows an opportunity for just educating anyone you're having a conversation with, with, you know, I don't prefer that, but, you know, this is what I prefer, but someone else might prefer something different and just being open and accepting the feedback. Because for me, when I was going through like school, it was taught as always person first. And that's just not the case when you actually interact within the community. So it was like a learning process of seeing what people prefer. And, you know, I always appreciated when people were honest with me and corrected me. So I think it's a good time just to use it as an opportunity to educate. There's always a chance to be humble and to learn from somebody who's different. I'm learning every day still. (laughs) (laughs) Vanya, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and... We can also catch you up on the question we're currently asking. Have a great thing from my end. I'm Banjo Vanya. I'm a special educator trainer. I train teachers for inclusive and special education. They are based in Cameroon. My interests have been autism. For the past eight years, I've been training teachers on autism. Then personally, I offer interventions at home to children with autism between the ages of 4 to 14 years. So that's my area of passion, special education. Though my first degree background has been gender studies, but due to my passion for inclusion and anti-discrimination, I got into the area of special education and inclusion. Thank you. Welcome, Vanya. We're glad that you're here, and you seem like you've had a great deal of experience working with a lot of uh, kids. Rachel, you look a little deep in thought. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I always get caught when I'm deep in thought. People are like, you have something to say? Don't really. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I'm just wondering, and I don't know if you're going to go here, Andrew, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. But when thinking about identity first language, I know some of you don't really care so much how you're referred as or how people refer to you. but could maybe someone speak to why it's so important, this identity first, why people feel so strongly about it in the autism community? I can start that if you would like. Because I see as an autistic self-advocate, that is a very important part of my identity. It's certainly not all, and that's one of the downsides that identity first language can have, is it may reduce somebody to a diagnosis if you take it to an extreme. But just like me saying that I'm a man, it doesn't mean that that's all of who I am, but it is an important part of who I am. But I'd say I'm autistic on the same level and have the same meaning, but it's a good, important part of who I am. It informs a lot of the way that I think, but it's not everything. It also gives me an intrinsic dignity by virtue of having something that's a part of me and based in something objective and can't be taken away. And even if I weren't to show it or to 
express it subjectively in the world, it's still there, which also means that you can't be changed into something else. It, it also means that you're not going to lose that quality of yourself if your behavior changes. Like decades ago, the goal for autistic people was indistinguishability from their peers. And I think that's a very faulty assumption to hold because that's not really possible, but also because it isn't really going to be practical to fit a square peg into a round hole all the way. I mean, there's some ways that you can change to better adapt to your environment. But if you are going under the assumption you can completely change somebody's intrinsic objective identity to match a different expression, then it's not going to work very well. So if you are able to start with the basis that this person is the way that they are, and there's nothing you can do to change that, but maybe you can change and learn and grow and adopt new behaviors to be more functional and successful, then I think you get a good balance. It also means that those aspects of who I am can be treasured as personality traits, just like personality traits. And that's what I like to compare it to. And personality traits, we value introverts, we value extroverts, we value empathy, we value compassion, we value directness in different contexts. Why not value neurodiversity too? I'll briefly touch on the idea of like a square peg into a round hole. I have a belief that the world is too large to change for one person or one small group of people, but one person or one small group of people can change the world. So by having small change in like the ripple effect, something small becomes something big, it starts with us or us as individuals to be the change we want to see in our lives, like Gandhi said, so that way we can make the world that we would like to create and live in ourselves. One thing I always say when you talk about the idea of making autistic people typical that's been around forever, the idea is, and obviously there is no typical, is, you know, I always say to people, there is no normal. So what does it mean to make somebody indistinguishable? Indistinguishable from what? Because there is no normal. It's the same with how you want to be identified. Mm -hmm. the, 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 I think the big challenge is that there's so many ways out there to be identified. Everybody has their own unique. It's like anything else. There is no normal in terms of how people want to be identified. You're really getting at the heart of the matter, Michael. <laughs> um, go ahead, Sarah. No, I just I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean you really got you got to the point. There's like indistinguishable from what? Okay, Sarah, <laughs> want to hear from you too? I love that too, and I I think that also finding maybe the friends or the people in the community that you can connect with that do have the same ideas and values is so special. And for maybe most of us, some of us that didn't happen until, you know, older into our adulthood. And it's so interesting what gratitude we can now have for that and wish that it could be the same for the young people in the world. I just hope for that. I wonder how that will be possible just as, as far as how do you start to change so many minds that our younger generation will come out, you know, thinking in different ways that are more productive for the future. My big question as a mom, right? <laughs> I would like to say, I think if people would start with respect, respecting one another, because everyone doesn't see everything the same way. 
We all have a different way we view things and wanting to be identified. And I feel if you respect that person for how they want to be identified and not focus on what's right and what's wrong, because there is no right way or wrong way, then the community can tend to grow and come together like this instead of apart based on if a person doesn't agree how someone else may identify themselves. I think just coming together and using that respect first would make a huge difference. Rosetta, I think you're bringing up an important point that will transition nicely into the next question. So of respect for another person's identity and the way that they're presenting, but it leads us to some challenges when somebody is presenting in a way that's very much different than the way that we know them to be inside. So let's say, and I like to ask this question to people, me as a, an autistic self-advocate, where you know that that's what I'm what I have and that's what I experience. And if I was starting to present in the way that was appearing normal or even openly identifying so, I think that the, there would be some questions that most people would want to ask. People would want to know perhaps why that's the case. So if you have that objective marker of autism, like you have the diagnosis in front of you, and then I were to say, well, I want to be normal or even saying, well, I'm, I'm normal. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong or, yeah, just occasional variations. Like, so if I'm subjectively presenting a certain way that's at odds with the objective way that I'm, that I am inside, then how do we react to that? What should that lead us to conclude about that person? And how should we treat that person compassionately when there seems to be a mismatch between the way they're expressing and the way that they're born? Well, what is normal? That's what I always say. There is no normal right. when it comes to human behavior. I think it also just depends on like the situation or like the environment that you're in, because I have a bunch of different, I mean, you can call them like hats that you're going to wear, but I'm not going to act the same way in a professional setting as I'm going to act with my, you know, meet up with my college girlfriends or whatever it is. So I think that we all, I mean, if you want to call it masking or whatever you want to call it, I think that there are a lot of different times that you act in different ways. And so I guess, are you asking how to treat people if they are presenting different than you know them to be in a certain situation? I'm trying to get at the heart of your question. Mostly that, yes. I think that you're right to say that some forms of masking, they're socially necessary and important and I might not show all of the autistic behaviors or the ways that I interact in all settings. If I was making a persistent effort and a pattern to not appear to be autistic or to even just outright deny it when you know that that's true, like then what that seems to throw up a challenge. Like this is systematic masking. So would you go along with it or do you wonder why? I think that's such a personal decision and it would be very hard for someone else to influence that person without them recognizing that that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? A little bit. So I'm on the fence about it as far as on one hand, if you have someone who is behaving a certain way or reacting to their environment or everything that they're going through and it might seem a little odd or inappropriate, but it's their way of processing the situation, then that should take place. On the other hand, I believe growth and getting out of your comfort zone is a very uncomfortable process. And some of that 
hardship, some of that difficulty we sometimes go through is necessary if we're going to become our best selves or be open to other newer experiences that could potentially make us better people. So I think we need to be able to find a happy medium, if you will, between being able to express ourselves freely without judgment when possible, but also see that life will throw us curveballs sometimes and we have to roll with the punches sometimes, if that makes sense. And what if we also keep in mind maybe judgment-free, of course, always, but if there isn't a safety issue at hand, then maybe it's none of our, our business and we, we mind ourselves and, you know, keep in control of our own things and destinies. However, if we do see safety concern, then I think in all well-being, we should take whatever measures are appropriate for that situation to help anyone out. Absolutely. We might have to make the environment as safe as possible for them to be exactly who they are. And they may not be ready for that. And we just do absolutely the best that we can to make that possible. So I know that with me having gone through a lot of periods where I was ashamed to be autistic or to have certain behaviors or I was struggling with my own self-identity, I was suffering in one way or another. And that's the reason that I was masking in the first place. And what I really wanted to hear from people is, is to be affirming. And by the by affirming, I mean, you're autistic, yes. And I know that's hard for you to accept that. But I want you to understand that you're accepted just as you are, no matter what other forces out there have led you to believe otherwise. And to me, that's true affirming. Because it's affirming what we know is true, what, no matter how hard it is to accept. But there are some people that just aren't going to be in a place at a particular time to do that. And it requires a lot of care and attention to know how to have those conversations because you, people are rational and they're not going to present a front of who they are that's false without a good reason. And sometimes it's a really serious one. And if we just demand change, not that we can really demand it from anybody right off the bat, that, that that's not going to work so well. It might backfire. That's definitely the case in a lot of trauma-informed approaches as well, because sometimes the reason that people hide parts of themselves is they're afraid of rejection, or there's been trauma in somebody's past, which leads them to act this way. And even though it may not seem rational in this scenario, it was at that particular time, or it would be based on what someone has experienced. So it's very important that we listen to that. And... If we see that there's a pattern of masking to be sensitive to why that might be happening and make the environment as safe as possible. I see Michael and Corey both want to join in. I was just going to ask Tom, because he, you do life coaching, you said. So it sounds like this is very much in your realm of helping people deal with this or is, is that off the mark? No, I feel it's in my wheelhouse to show people that they have the power to create the life that they want and that it's going to take a little bit of soul searching, for lack of a better term, and really gain clarity because I believe clarity is the prerequisite to motivation. So when we know why things are happening to us or why we behave the way we do and why we're shooting for what we're shooting for, then things start to fall into place. Granted, the whole process of letting go of just self-destructive patterns, things that haven't worked for you in order to open up for something new 
it's going to be difficult letting go of your past or realizing this hasn't worked for me. I have to think of something else. So it is an ongoing lifelong process and success is not just a one time thing. It's a series of steps that result in something big. So that's a little bit of what I go into or what's in the back of my head as I coach my clients. And do most of those clients seek you out or do you have opportunities to go and like speak to maybe groups that weren't seeking you out? Because I'm, I'm trying to find that happy medium to what Andrew is saying, because it is hard to reach people who aren't reaching out themselves. And it goes both ways for me. I do have people that are seeking me out. I also am a Toastmasters International accredited speaker. There are only 90 of them in the world. And I'm the only person on the spectrum that has gotten this designation. So by putting myself out there to Toastmasters clubs made up of allies of people on the autism spectrum, they think, oh my gosh, Tom's amazing. I'm going to recommend him to this person. So putting myself out there being the person who goes to where the action is. That's another big thing of me coming to life. I go to where the people are and where the action is instead of them or waiting for them to come to me. I go to them. Anytime that we're looking at barriers that are keeping us from being who we are, being the best that we could be. It's always important to have those people around us like yourself. And I know that there might be plenty of reasons out there that the world gives us or the experiences that we have that might lead us to adopt those beliefs. And the more that we examine that, then the more that we can make progress and change. But there's a particular quote that I like to use frequently in my presentations by uh, Brene Brown and some of you might know it. It's called, it says, true belonging does not require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And I love that reference for many reasons. One, it is the foundation for a lot of what I view and of a lot of my views on identity and authenticity. But it also defines true belonging, which is what all of us are searching for. And I think we can only reach true belonging if we're able to self-actualize our identity, like uh, Tom was saying at the very beginning. So what do you see as belonging in the world and how can we foster that for people who are struggling with their identity? I think that it's almost like I all of the ideas that come to my head come into my mind as a parent because I'm literally shaping and guiding human beings into understanding their own identity and their own individuality. And so for me, it's having being on my third child, having raised already an adult and a teenager and now a preteen, I think with the youngest one, it's the most important. <laughs> Not that the other two weren't so highly important, but, but my perspectives and my into my intention is so much different in allowing this individual to guide me in the way that is important for them, that I'm going to set up all the safest boundaries and all the safest places and, and give all the greatest opportunities. Yet I am not going to try to force my hand, force anyone else's hand, be in control, which is really hard as a parent to not be in control, but I really want to follow instead of take the lead. I really want to just see how that goes. And I'm already, cause I'm already seeing kind of the effects that it, that it's had on this unique individual. And I think it's breathtaking and beautiful and I'm so excited. So I, I think that 
learning a new way to be is always the best way we can go into any situation, especially when we're given the opportunity to do it over and over and over again with children. <laughs> so I think that, yeah, um, I hope that that makes sense. And that was in any, um, you know, realm of what you were asking there. As far as the definition of belonging and inclusion for that matter, uh, it's been said that inclusion involves cluing in the peers. So when we not only let ourselves be known to people, what we have to offer, but also everybody else knows about us, what we have to offer, and that two-way street is created, and then see that the acceptance, or knock on wood, it happens, the acceptance takes place, and somebody has found somewhere where they can be themselves and be their best selves, hopefully without judgment, and like they're not looking to be changed. And I like to say to my high school students that I give talks to, to watch out for people that say, I'll be your friend if, or if you do something for me, I'll be your friend. Because do you really belong with a group of people? If you have to do something or if you have to not be you, that's probably not somewhere you belong. And it can even pertain to a job or a profession. I thought I belonged doing taxes, accounting stuff. I did that for seven years as a CPA before I realized this sucks. I don't belong here. And I walked away from that. So sometimes you have to find your own tribe. And you may have heard that term before, find your tribe, that group of people who love and accept you for you. And as much as we may like them to come to us, I think when we search them out, we can find them and we will. I really like that. Tom, what you said about seeing what people can offer. Because yes, of course, we should leave space for people to be who they are, their authentic selves. But I think this other part of a sense of belonging is that what you are bringing is valuable. That you, if it's your ideas or maybe a special skill that you have, whatever it is that you're bringing to the community is important and that people want to hear it because you can be yourself and just kind of speak into the void. But if there isn't that interaction, then I feel like it's not really serving that sense of belonging. I like the idea of like differentiating between fitting in and belonging Whereas like fitting in is you've probably changed something to fit in somewhere, whereas belonging you are yourself within that group and accepted for yourself. And I think it's easier as adults to kind of see that, but I think it's much harder with kids learning where they fit in into the world that you don't have to change to fit in. You can just be yourself to belong. And that's a really hard lesson, I think, to teach and to learn. It's one of Brene's core teachings, and it's very valuable. It's really changed how I view that in the same way. For adding that, Corey. Vanya, you've been raising your hand. I just wanted to keep in my own contribution related to inclusion. I was looking at it that just the fact that everybody's mingled together and interact. Some people were ignorant, or people's other people capability, like for example. They came to understand that there was some ignorance, expressing some ignorance. They may be causing their negative attitude or behavior. So I believe that with inclusion through constant interaction, 
society will, people in the society will come to understand each other that we are different but not abnormal. So the input that other people that you may be considering to be abnormal may even be greater than the so-called normal. So it's all about interaction, communications, exchange that will influence change instead of living on maybe literature or stereotype. So I believe because maybe thinking that this person behave like this as you read from literature. But when you realize that when you interact with two, three, four people, maybe it will cancel what you usually understood. So inclusion will be promoted better when people have direct interaction with each other, understand the difference and similarities and learn from the strength and the weaknesses. So that's my own point of view that we can promote inclusion and in the long run become more sustainable. Thank you for sharing that. Anybody else before I close out that question? The idea of finding community is, I think a lot of it is we need to teach people in general how to be more accepting of others. And I think I see this with the work I do representing children in schools. So many children in schools, the idea is they have to be normal. They have to fit in. And schools are not teaching them to just accept who they are as long as they're within a certain level of social normality. Michael, you really hit on the point that we need to be able to understand in order to make change in society that we're changing society in this instance to be more accepting rather than changing ourselves. And it starts when they're children. I mean, look, there's, I always say there's a level of what's quote unquote normal. There's a level we all have to accept. We don't all have to be whatever is normal, but there's like, I have children I represent. If the child's doing something that's not harming themselves or others, who cares? But if they're going around hitting other children or masturbating in class, which happens a lot, those things we have to address. But if the child is sitting there flapping their hands, who cares? Yeah. You're right. There's certain limits to letting people act out. And there are certain things that we have to do something about. Most things are pretty harmless. And even if there are some things that impede the social order, there might be ways to work around that. But that's where we come in, um, is we're that facilitator. So to touch on that point of how do we teach society to be more accepting? Sometimes that's in living out our identity fully. I was just reflecting this week because back when I was 12 years old, I read a civil rights movement memoir. And back when this, um, when the author was a child, she noticed that, oh, well, everything's so different for me versus the white people. And one day she was like, you know what, one day I want to change this out and I want to be white. And her grandma looked at that and saw what she was really saying. It's like, you don't want to be white. You want to be free. And I thought that was really inspiring and really got to the core of that. It's not something I can really understand that sentiment as a white man, but I can't really grasp what somebody is going through in that scenario. But what I can grasp is that sense of feeling different and feeling othered and not feeling like you belong or you're accepted in society as you are. But over time, we see that she becomes a very important voice in the forces for change to ensure that all races are treated equally. And it's only through living her life as she was and even through fighting a whole lot of opposition that she was able to accomplish that. And I thought, how can I take that and relate to my own experience as a minority in a completely different sense that may have very little in common and ex explore that in myself? and say, well, I don't need to change being autistic. I just need to change the world in whatever capacity I can to make it more accepting. 
so that people of all races, all people of all neurotypes, people of all cultures, et cetera, can become fully accepted and hopefully we're all going to live in harmony. And I think if we strive for that, we're going to create the world that we want. We're getting down to the end of today, though. So do we have any uh, final reflections from around the table? Uh, I'll I would say, like to say... Go, go ahead, Rosetta. I would like to pretty much piggyback on what you just said about the book we were reading about the person and how she just went on to make changes. That's the way we have to look at it. With not just the person's color, their skin, or what they're diagnosed as, but finding that purpose in your life. And not looking at a situation where I've noticed with some parents, they hold their child back because they're on the spectrum. And they say, oh, you can't do this because you're on the spectrum. Or you can't go this place. Or you can't have these type of friends. And from what I have observed, if you do that, you won't know the true potential of that person. Just like he was just an example with the woman in the book. How would she know her true potential had she not went for it? So I say to all of you just listening to this broadcast right now or listening to it on the recording, if you feel you have a purpose in your life, don't let what you've been diagnosed with stop you. Don't let you the fact that you're on the spectrum stop you from achieving anything in this world that you can do because you can do it. Don't let anyone tell you, your family, your whoever it is. Don't let them put boundaries on you and say what you cannot achieve because you can achieve the impossible. And that's what we're here to do today, to empower everyone. And on that note, uh, parents have good intentions for their children, want what's best for them, of course, as well they should. But at the end of the day, parents cannot live their children's lives. And children have to be able to see what's out there, explore what's available to them, and choose a life that they can be happy and productive with. That was a strong finish, y'all. Good job. <laughs> was that a mic drop here? Yeah, that was, I don't, that was an absolute mic drop. <laughs> Banya, your hands raised. You have a final reflection? Okay. We are talking about society. What we need more in the societies is a sensitization awareness. Many people in the society is due to ignorance. Let me quote an example from Cameroon, where I'm from. Previously, people have so many negative attitudes. They attribute most often they may be autistic to witchcraft, curse, punishment, and the rest. But with time, as we do, we do advocacy, we do sensitization, we realize that families are more educated, they're more aware, and are able to bring out their children to say, no, I have a child who has a challenge, I have a child. So to me, it's more of sensitization. After sensitization, we need empowerment. Because some of them know that I have this child, but they want to support. But the cost, financial cost, is always expensive because most often they say the expenditure to have for extra classes, extra support for the child with autism or any other disability is a burden. So when they need sensitization, society needs to be sensitized, they need empowerment and even support, financial support somehow. Because they believe that if they bring this, because most of them hide the children in the rooms, they hide the children in the houses. They don't need to accept that they have children with special need not to talk about autism. So, but we give them the right knowledge. I, I, again, make the parents to understand that it's a crime. You should understand that this, if you are ignoring a child, we are narrating somebody, it's human rights abuse. 
when you make them to understand that it is lawful, it is a crime, the attitude will change. The body understands there's a repercussion to their behaviors. Even in school, we should also sensitize the children because in school, where we have the foundation, after the family is the school, children will have neutral attitudes. Some body are neutral, they are more receptive to change. So we should sensitize the children, the parents, the teachers to sensitize, to make them understand that different is normal. They should be accommodated to everybody. And you that show any negative behavior in situations, they should accompany punishment. So that is my own point of view. You become realistic from this perspective for what I'm observing in my own community. In this sensitization, empowerment, and support. I just wanted to say how important it is that we keep in mind how different it is all over the world. And I love that you can bring that perspective, Vanya, and share with us how important awareness and the sensitization really still is in so many areas. So I just thought that was really important to to point out. I think just to kind of bring it back to identity, in some of these communities where there isn't so much awareness or there aren't so many services available, I think empowering, like Vanya was saying, empowering the parents to empower the children to be self-advocates when they grow up is so important to this kind of change in perception and attitudes. and. You know, as much as some might say too strong of an identity in anything might not be good, because if you get too stuck in only seeing things one way from one perspective, you might lose sight of other ways to look at life, really. But in the spirit of activism, autistic identity can really propel things forward if people embrace it and then speak up and kind of share their own lived experiences. It has been an absolutely wonderful uh, roundtable with all of you, and we're about to wrap up. Rachel, are you going to make any announcements of anything? Right, right. Well, first, thank you, Andrew, so much. You did a wonderful job facilitating today, just like a natural. So thank you for everything you've done with the community so far, being part of the moderator team, and it was just such a pleasure to see you shine in this role. And so, yes, announcement, as Sarah was saying. Well, Sarah, do you want to go ahead and speak? This is sure your moment to shine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I guess a lot of us are, are part of it here that, that are here anyway. So that's exciting. And this August, I will be hosting the second annual virtual autism summit. And this year it is called the one in 36 mix. Um, and we will be elevating autistic voices, sharing stories and celebrating one another. And we're announcing it here because I'm so excited that Rachel will be my co-host for the event. So I'm just thrilled to have her in the global autism project join me in this. So it'll be fantastic. And also as 
were on the call will also have Andrew, Tom, and Rosetta, <laughs> who will also be a part of it. Michael, if you want to go over to the speaker form <laughs> and fill that out. <laughs> I think we discussed this last year. I believe so. So we'll I'll get you all the information. Um, but we're really just excited. We're just so excited to be able to um celebrate and bring all this platforms for everyone to share their great experiences. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you again, Andrew. You're so welcome. And we'll see you guys. Great job, Andrew. Bye. Great to see everyone. Really glad to be part of this today. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What are your thoughts on autistic identity? Do any of the participants' perspectives resonate with you? Share your ideas over in our online Global Autism community. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.